in perusing the uh, far-reaching tentacles of Twitter as we do, recently I was looking around, and as a former sportscaster, I, I do have a lot of sports pieces to my Twitter puzzle. And I landed on the feed of former figure skater, gold medal winner in pairs with her partner, David Peltier, Jamie Soleil. Have you followed Jamie Soleil at all? Uh, you might recall the darling that Soleil was during Salt Lake uh, City Olympics, uh, awarded silver, and then given the gold that they actually won, the pair really capturing our hearts. Uh, barely recognizing uh, Jamie Soleil these days after looking at her social media, sadly. There's a great deal of disinformation there. It really did catch me off guard, to be honest, and I, I, I wasn't necessarily going to talk about it here, but then I saw... Uh, a, a video uh, of of a podcast that that Jamie Soleil did, and, and it's titled "Jamie Soleil Pushes Back on Cancel Culture." I thought, okay, I got to watch this. Here's a snippet of that video on Jamie Soleil's uh, feed, referencing how she's teaming up with Theron Fleury, formerly of the Calgary Flames, on a far right initiative. Listen to this. Yeah, well, he approached me a while ago to uh, be a part of. I'm not quite sure if it's going to be a channel or it's just like a, like a network. I'm not exactly sure what to call it, but it's a truther um, platform where we can all be. So it would be like anyone that we all listen to basically would go there as long as they are authentic truthers and not some of those fake ones out there or the, the opposition, if you will. Um, and so when he approached me on this, I thought at first, oh, I don't know if I really want to do that. And then uh, he went and did an interview with Tucker and met with a, a group down there. Uh, I'll just say very big names. And um, they want this to be in Canada. And I said, Theo, count me in. And he's like, welcome to the team. So our community is growing, as you know, Mark, by the day. More and more and more people are waking up. Um, and this is not about being vaccinated or not. This is about seeing what's really going on in front of our eyes. Okay, so the mark that Jamie Soleil was mentioning there is Mark Patron. It's the Mark Patron Show. That's where we found this video. It's a it's a video podcast. I want to talk this through because the things that really peak for me is that after Theo Fleury went on Fox News, uh, the Tucker, uh, Jamie Soleil mentioned there, Tucker Carlson and quote unquote, very big names, truther platform, authentic truthers versus the opposition. A bunch of stuff I thought, you know what, I need to unpack this and the go-to person when it comes to this sort of... Uh, rhetoric. That's the only word I can really come up with here. It's, it feels weird. Jesse Miller is the social media edu educator and founder of Mediated Reality and my touchstone when it comes to all things social media, disinformation, misinformation, and radicalization, frankly. Jesse Miller joins us on the line. Hey, Jesse. Cody, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Is it weird that this feels weird to me? Uh, it, it is based on the legacy of the individuals involved. Uh, especially Jamie Soleil in the sense of maybe the, the pivot from what we knew uh, in, 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 two, in the early 2000s. But, you know, one of the things you have to consider here is that uh, anybody is prone to having, obviously, opinions. But what I, what, I, what, I, what I think is important to recognize here is that, you know, she's talking about the opposite of, of the individuals, you know, the fake truthers. Is that you? Is that, is that the mainstream news? Is that, um, you know, truthers who are, who, are, who are putting out rhetoric that doesn't align with other truthers? There's so many confusion pieces. And when she says, that you know the individuals are waking up and seeing what's blatantly in front of them 
Um, I, I don't understand what that means because there's no context. It's too big of a tent. And so when we think about Theo Fleury, and obviously Theo Fleury's gone through a lot in his personal life and, and his professional life has always kind of been that focal point. And I always really valued the fact that Theo Fleury was able to find a lot of successes despite no supports for what he went through as a young hockey player and as a person who struggled with addictions as a professional. But one of the things you have to keep in mind here is that Theo Fleury has a verified account because he's a former hockey player, because he's a, a former Olympian. And in that, the idea that he uses that platform to share so much misinformation, but there's no accountability, obviously yeah. there's going to be a point where there are more people who buy in. So what you said there, I think, is so key with regard to how there is no space for challenging anything like Jamie Soleil is entitled to have her opinions on whatever Jamie Soleil wants to talk about. We live in a free country. That's the point. It is a free country. You're allowed to say that, but to say that we are going to work together with those disinformation champions with a multi-billion dollar industry behind them at Fox news, the, the Tucker Carlson's and the quote unquote, very big names to create an, a, an authentic truthers platform. Like what, what is that authentic truthers? And not even just you and me and, and people who are talking on the radio uh, or part of quote unquote mainstream media, you know, that has somehow become a dirty word to a, a slice of society, but even just somebody who might challenge the perspective of a Theron Fleury or a Jamie Soleil at people that have that platform. Because I mean, I have a fairly large platform and if somebody challenges me, I'll have that conversation with them. It's not like my way or the highway, but I will tell you what I believe but it mm -hmm. just feels it feels exclusive and it, it feels dismissive. And we've I, seen I, that with the, with the Fox News rhetoric, that it is very dismissive of any challenge and devoid sometimes of fact. Yeah, we got to remember in Canada, we, we are structured in an interesting way when it comes to our media. And so we have you know six or seven big conglomerates that control a lot of our media in Canada. We also have our publicly funded CBC and, 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 and French media in that space as well. Um, but with, when it comes to the way that we subscribe to media and our media biases, you know, we grew up, you know, seeing a newspaper come in. Why did you get that newspaper versus the other one? Or why do you mm. read that paper versus this? Sometimes that's family uh, values. Sometimes that's perceptions of which one is more left or right leaning. But with the aspect of the Internet, like the CRTC controls a lot of how Canadian media can, can function in the sense of who can own it and who's allowed to put what on television and how we accept that media kind of happens within our borders. And so when we talk about language laws, when we talk about right of access and production, there's all those pieces that go into what it means to be in Canadian media. So when Fox News wants a piece of Canadian media, the best they can do is basically make it available through cable. And then the Internet allows them to have flexibility in how other people from, let's say, across Canada choose to access an American product. But the Murdoch family has traditionally tried to get into Canada and they have, they've been stonewalled. They can't uh, because you can't have a foreign ownership in that regard. And so within that, when we think about the way that individuals like Soleil or Fleury may be pandered to a little bit, they're like, hey, listen, we want to get you something similar to Rebel News. We want to get you something where your voice is beyond, um, you know, the, the confines of where you think that you're being censored. And even this week, Theo Fleury was tweeting about how he thinks the Twitter bots are communists and they're censoring him. He, I even shared a tweet this morning. He, he thinks that Bill Gates uh, is a pedophile who traveled to Epstein's Island 37 times. The thing is, he, he's like, why would anybody ever trust Bill Gates? Theo Fleury is featured on an app that is hosted by Microsoft servers. He doesn't even know where his own brand is attached to. So in that, the idea of this truther piece, it seems to work when it gets you amplified. Because without this conspiracy garbage right now, what would Jamie Soleil or Theo Fleury be talking about?
And what's in it for the Murdochs to do something like this or for Tucker Carlson to have have attached himself so strongly to what the the trucker convoy and perhaps again amplifying it we'll see perhaps this weekend um with with more protest plans in our planned in our nation's capital what's in it for that american brand here you know to be fair it isn't about canadian advertising dollars it is about clicks and so we're at a stage now where the more followers you have the more ability you have to get your platforms visual uh uh, connectivity throughout the internet that's going to be the thing because tucker carlson's lost so many sponsors you know he's just limited to the my pillow guy essentially so it means that his content online is really what drives a lot of that 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 audience and so in that we don't really need borders anymore when it comes to media consumption. We, we can watch anything. I can subscribe to K-pop directly from Korea. I can watch a Swedish podcaster talk about whatever it is I'm interested in. And that doesn't mean the CRTC has any rule rolling whether I should be allowed to watch that in my middle of my living room. And so in that, they recognize that that's where the internet is taking us as media consumers and our broadcast terrestrial uh, media, which is what we're doing right now, um, isn't being listened to. I mean, it could be from somebody in Sweden, but they would have to use the internet to do that. They're not getting it right. across their AM dial. So that's where the benefit for them is. What is, Je- we're with Jesse Miller. Jesse is a social media educator and founder of Mediated Reality. And by the way, one of the best follows on Twitter you will find when it comes to carving through the disinformation that is just absolutely inundating most people online. Um, Jesse, what is a truther? Is there a definition of a truther? Yeah, right now we're, I mean, it's so interesting to think about, but the idea of it being that you're woke, you're, you're, you're waking up. You're not woke because that, that's a pejorative um, in, 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 that, in that line, the idea that you are aware of racial you know, injustices and biases and making space for individuals. Um, but within that, uh, truthers are aware that uh, there's a lot of things going on in front of us and that a lot of people have their, their puppet strings tugging at things and that um, there's always a next thing that's attached to the next thing. So let example, uh, the coronavirus was generated by government and then the vaccine is going to track you and 5g technologies are creating these problems and you know the hard part for me is that it's it's a continually rolling ball of crazy and it's hard to keep up with and the one thing i love about conspiracy and i i mean i use the word crazy kind of in a a, a flexible word because it doesn't mean that's mental health it means that it just seems overwhelming it seems like there's so many strings connected that it should make sense it should be like yes of course these people would be uh, all in cahoots together but the reality of it is, is that majority of conspiracies usually have some small sliver of truth to stand up on, to have a foundation. So would I love to know who was actually behind the JFK killing? Sure. Was there enough information to kind of put pieces together now, you know, all these years later? Definitely. Does that mean you have a clear and concise investigation and a formal, factual you know, uh, end result? Not at all. So within that, truthers are usually looking for bits and pieces to kind of help their narrative. Right. It's a bit of a patchwork quilt of... of- yeah half-truths and and what is it what are they called alternate facts i really wish that term never came into play jesse as always appreciate your perspective thanks for doing this thanks jody as always jody vance in for mike smith time to talk bc politics in a big way obviously yesterday a huge day as premier john horgan announcing he will not seek re-election 
uh, and a new NDP leader will be chosen this fall, wanting to get more reaction. We've uh, had uh, various leaders and former leaders on CKNW ever since the press briefing was held yesterday. Uh, Professor Weaver, from formerly of the Green Party, was on yesterday afternoon with Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Then we had uh, new BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon on Mornings with Simi. And now I'm very pleased to have with us the leader of the BC Green Party, Sonia Firstenau, on the line. Thank you for doing this, Sonia. Appreciate it. Happy to be here, Jody. I initially reached out to you to talk about uh, incredibly long wait times at walk-in clinics in British Columbia, and we will get to that. But first, I want to get your perspective on the announcement made by Premier uh, John Horgan yesterday. Uh, Were you surprised at all? I I think all of us were surprised. Uh, It it, uh, happened quite suddenly, but I think that it had been uh, something that we were expecting, ultimately, um, there had been a lot of a lot of action uh, in and around the legislature in terms of hearing about different cabinet ministers getting their leadership races up and going. So there were clues for sure. Mm, okay, and uh, we're hearing a lot of um, sort of departing thoughts for the premier mm-hmm. when you're when you're looking at uh, the body of work that John Horgan has put forward. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, 17 years as an elected representative is uh, an enormous amount of work and and effort and energy on behalf of his constituents and then as premier on behalf of the whole province. And, of course, it's important to to recognize and be grateful to anybody willing to take that on. And I think that, uh, you know, he's he's put a lot into it. I've heard a lot. He used to be the MLA for this region here in Shawnigan and and uh, there was a lot of gratitude for his work when he was MLA here. And and I think it's really important for us to remember, you know, we can differ on policies and politics, but people in public service are making a lot of sacrifices and working really hard to be there. For, and for that, we're very grateful to him. Indeed, it is important when we're talking politics that there are human beings behind the mm-hmm. headlines and behind the barbs that might be tossed in question period in the legislature. Let's get to uh, the reason why I reached out to you initially. Here is Premier John Horgan uh, referencing the fact that that healthcare is a massive issue across Canada. But here in BC, we have the longest wait times for walk-in clinics. Have a listen to this. As leader of the Council of Federation, uh, premiers across the country will be assembling in Victoria, where the number one issue on the table is a commitment from the federal government to sit down with the provinces and resolve the crisis in public health care. I fully intend to carry on that battle to make uh, the federal government stand up for the commitments they made to all of us and convene a meeting so that we can fix the most important social program, in fact, the most important program in Canada. So many British Columbians are struggling to find a physician. And when you can't find a physician, I mean, many of us used to use walk-in clinics as that last bastion of, okay, well, at least I can see a doctor. But when you tweeted yesterday that it's a three-week wait to get into a walk-in clinic, I thought, I need to talk to Sonia first mm-hmm. of all about this. What, how did we get here? Yeah, it, that's a really good question to ask. And I think we didn't get here in, in a year or even in a few years. This has been a crisis that has been growing over time, and it's a combination of things. But where we're at right now is, and I think it's interesting to hear Premier Horgan say that, the, you know, the federal government needs to sit down with the premiers. This government 
needs to sit down with frontline family physicians and work with them to resolve the issues, the very legitimate, very serious issues that family doctors have been raising around their compensation, their hours of work, the lack of support when it comes to just being able to take time off or have a retirement plan, and that the burden on these doctors has become so enormous that a lot of them are saying, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't take care of my own health and work in these kinds of conditions. And what I find so alarming is that uh, there seems to be a real resistance and a real reluctance on the part of the health minister, uh, Minister Dix, to, to meet doctors where they're at, to really hear and understand that the fee-for-service model, which hasn't been increased, you know, more than a few dollars per visit in a long time, hasn't been modernized to recognize that there is a big difference between uh, a five-minute, ten-minute visit, you know, on a on an earache versus a complex visit on a series of things, and that that has to be compensated differently, and then to recognize the burden of overhead costs that have risen enormously, and the fee and the fee for service hasn't. I mean, we can start with some of the basics, but I think that where the the operating principle has to be is that our healthcare system is wholly reliant on frontline family physicians. And if we lose that piece of our healthcare system, we can't expect the system to operate. We're with Sonia Firstenot, leader of the BC Green Party, and there are a couple of things that peak with me there with what you were explaining, that maybe people don't recognize or realize the, 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 co- the fee per visit uh, and the difference, I literally sprint in and out. If I if I have to go to my doctor just to get a prescription filled, I literally go, hi, how you doing? I just need that prescription refilled. Okay, thanks, bye. And I run out so that there's an opportunity for him to expand on perhaps the next appointment. Like just, just mm-hmm. being aware, For I'm so lucky that I do have a physician who also has shared with me how in this last year, the small, the teeny tiny little office that he pays for had the, the lease the rent there triple. He mm-hmm. didn't get to triple what he charges per yeah. visit, but he it, it 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 almost made him walk away. I had a moment where I was like, "Please don't, please." Yeah. Is there a, is there a formula that might be able to happen here, Sonia? That that there could be some break for for GPs uh, in in what they pay for in overhead and insurance and staffing and all of that yeah. in order to sort of bolster, put some pillars underneath our healthcare system in that way. Yeah, Jody, I mean, this is the thing that I, I, again, I don't understand why we're not seeing these kinds of solutions being put on the table by the provincial government, where in this time of crisis, as we bridge this period, and and I know that, you know, there's a vision for team-based care, and I think team-based care is really important. But right now, what Adrian Dix needs to do is say to doctors, we're going to help with that overhead. We're going to cover some of your admin costs. We're going to cover one one medical office assistant position for you. Whatever it takes to relieve that burden uh, from family physicians right now so that they can have the breathing space and the ability to say, okay, I don't need to close down my office. I can actually have evenings and weekends uh, and spend some time with my family or taking care of my own health. And then let's move forward towards the vision. And one of the things that when we had our town hall uh, that came up from, from the doctors that we, we had with us was 
the idea of treating this system like a system. So a teacher doesn't go into a classroom and think, oh, I have to pay for my overhead costs and I have to pay for the secretary and I have to pay for the, uh, you know, for the Principal. photocopy machine. Yeah. yeah. Right. The yeah. teacher goes into a class and teaches. Uh, I, I, we need uh, to imagine a healthcare system where that infrastructure is there and then doctors are operating within that infrastructure, community health centers, um, and and physical buildings, and they're not worried about that the overhead costs, and they can focus their energy and their efforts onto their patients and providing care, and, and ideally, yes, working as a team. Another thing that we've called for for the last two years has been incorporate psychologists into primary care networks, provide that mental health care right there in the in the primary care uh, field so that people are getting access to that preventative, uh, helpful mental health care when they need it, as opposed to waiting for an emergency and showing up in the emergency uh, department. Right, which is causing those wait times to go through the roof in a time where those are short-staffed as well. Mental health care supports, optometrists, dentists, physicians mm-hmm. could all be in one or a number of buildings where the overhead is that of uh, uh, government-owned spaces. It just yeah. makes such pragmatic sense, Sonia. Yeah, I, I, I had a meeting with Dr. Karen Koss. She's in Whistler, and they have a... a uh, a team-based care approach there. And she said, she said this one thing that really resonated. She said, when, a, when somebody walks in the door, no matter what their health needs is, uh, no matter what their health needs are, they're in the right place. Right. And wow. so imagine as a, as a citizen, as a patient, knowing that you're going to walk in the door of a healthcare center and you're in the right place, no matter what. And I think we have to have that vision for, for what we want to create when it comes to that primary health care system. And, once, and then work from where we're at. We're not there yet, but we want to get there. And we start measuring our outcomes by, is this moving us towards that place? Got to make it a fundamental uh, vo- vocal need from the electorate, for sure. Sonia, first to know, always a pleasure to have an opportunity to chat with you. Thanks for giving us some of your time today. Thanks so much, Jody. Always a pleasure. All right, Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Time to cast our gaze south of the border. What a day. What a blockbuster, mind-boggling day where the January 6th committee uh, held a surprise, unplanned, unscheduled meeting. They weren't supposed to reconvene until July 11th and then with less than 24 hours notice said, "Uh, we're having one tomorrow, which was yesterday. And if you tuned into it, I mean, you heard snippets of it here on this show uh, I was glued to the coverage of this until I went to bed last night. I'm just so shocked and and awestruck um, by finally having sort of some semblance of what was going on behind the scenes uh, on that fateful day, on the day that the U.S. Capitol was stormed and and threatened and and people killed. It, it's just it's just astounding to sort of revisit it and and hear people coming forward now telling the tale of what they saw, what they heard, what they were told. I want to get all of the facts on this case to lay before you what happened yesterday in the January 6th committee hearings. And for that, we go to the the man I always reach out to when I need to know what's happening in the United States and particularly in the U.S. Capitol. He is Global Nationals, Washington, D.C. correspondent and producer Reggie Cicchini is on the line with us. Hey, Reggie. Good morning. 
So you have been traveling around. I mean, if last Friday's overturning of Roe versus Wade wasn't enough, you were in Tennessee. We talked to you on Monday, and then you were flying back to D.C. and getting or And then this this unscheduled January sixth committing committee hearing was was held. How how did you hear about that? And and how closely veiled was the content of this surprise hearing? Yeah, I mean, we were only given uh, about 36 hours notice that this was coming down the pipeline, uh, and it was kept secret for a number of hours afterwards who the ultimate witness was going to be that the committee said was going to provide new evidence um, that simply couldn't wait. Uh, and I think it goes to show, A, how um, how this committee has been treating these hearings from the beginning as not something to be leaked to the public, rather something to be presented to the public. And I think that was the point uh, of keeping this mm-hmm. under wraps as much as it possibly could, uh, not simply just to kind of captivate the audience to let people, you know, uh, think, you know, what could be coming next, but also to kind of underscore the significance of these hearings, of what they are trying to accomplish, and of what may potentially change the minds of some people around this country. So who did we see? Who was presented? Who is Cassidy Hutchinson? So Cassidy Hutchinson uh, may not be a household name, may not even be a real big Washington name, uh, you know, up until the point of when she was sitting on the stands. But she was um, a key player within uh, the administration, even uh, only being in her mid-20s. She started off uh, working uh, in the offices of Steve Scalise, the Republican House Whip. She also worked in the office of Senator Ted Cruz. But her, her integral part to this investigation is that she was the senior aide to Mark Meadows, who was then uh, Donald Trump's final chief of staff. Meaning that she was a fly on the wall in the West Wing, in the Oval Office, in uh, the office of the Chief of Staff, and on Air Force One. So the testimony that she brought forth, while some of it may have been secondhand, a lot of this was firsthand uh, 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 testimony to things that she had heard, things that had concerned her, and things that you know had built to a point of where she felt that even after 20 hours of closed-door depositions, she needed to go on the record. Her testimony was bombshell testimony and on many fronts, not just one item. Can you lay out what the hottest issues are that were laid before the committee yesterday by Ms. Hutchinson? Yeah, and, and, and there were some really big nuggets of information um, that, that I think were remarkable because if we go back you know, four or five years to when Donald Trump came down that escalator and to the point that he walked into the White House, uh, it was a very leaky building. A lot of, of palace intrigue disappeared because we, you know, the doors flung open and we knew what was going on in the inner workings of the Trump administration. What we didn't know is some of the information that she brought forward and namely the information from when Donald Trump was holding his rally on the ellipse. We found out that Donald Trump knew he had been presented with information that people in D.C. that morning had been seen with with assault rifles and had been seen with poles, with spears um, kind of attached at the end of them. Um, And and what that means is that Donald Trump knew as he was talking to the crowd, as he was saying, quote, fight like hell, that there were armed people listening and more so that he was angry at the fact that metal detectors were holding some people back from getting into his crowd. Why does that matter? Well, Donald Trump was concerned that the size of his crowd wouldn't look big enough in a picture if people weren't allowed to come in and was pushing back on uh, on those mags from from letting people in saying he didn't care if people were armed because he, according to the testimony he knew they weren't there for him what does that signify to the committee possibly that this wasn't as spontaneous a riot as 
Team Trump has been saying, but rather something far more premeditated. It feels as though this could shift the path of the January 6th committee. Is this um, earth shattering information for those who are putting these hearings forward to the American public? Or is this a case, Reggie, in your uh, well-informed opinion, that that the committee sees an even broader, greater picture of this, given all of the uh, interviews that they have done and that they continue to do under oath? Um, what, What are we seeing here? Is it just being laid out and parsed out to the public? Or or is this just the tip of the proverbial iceberg on what they know. I think that there are a couple of things here. Um, number one, uh, the, the committee saw how important this information was because it was new information, because it paints a picture of, uh, you know, what can be assumed to be the mind frame uh, of Donald Trump, the, the weeks leading up to the days leading up to the hours of and hours during the January 6th riot. Um, also, I think what's important to remember here is this was another uh, Republican coming forward to testify. This is not, you know, Jill to Democrats. This is not Democrats who have a beef with the former president. These are members of the Republican Party who have voted Republican, who actively worked inside, along with, or near the Trump administration, who felt that democracy was on the line. And this is that opportunity to show that despite the fact you have the former president in these truths that he keeps putting out via email, um, that this is a partisan witch hunt, that this is a, an unselect fake committee, when in reality what this is is a committee of lawmakers, including Republicans, hearing Republican testimony. They're getting shot right. down as nothing but rhinos, Republican in name only. But um, what what the committee is trying to do here is show that, look, this is not just Democrats going after Donald Trump. There was a legitimate fear here. There was a legitimate um, crisis that, that, uh, that brought American democracy to the brink. And bringing this forward, bringing this um, this witness forward, is another kind of dive deep inside the Trump administration to now include the chief of staff putting the Oval Office or at least the West Wing closer to the center of this investigation for not only lawmakers, but potentially going outwards as well into the Department of Justice. Well, last week, Reggie, I think his name was Burroughs, one of the officials from Georgia who had his house staked out and they were threatened, he was smear campaigned and all of that. And at the end of the testimony where you really felt for him, he said, I, I voted for Trump and I would vote for him again. So how can they argue that this is some sort of witch hunt when somebody is literally sitting there telling their truth under oath and then stating that they would continue to support uh, former tr- President Donald Trump if, if he were to run again? I mean, look, this is this is where the Republican Party finds themselves conflicted. People will say, especially if you are in the line of politics, and we've seen this now for, for years and years in this country, uh, you will stand behind Donald Trump until you don't need to stand behind Donald Trump anymore. So, you know, there could potentially be this kind of, um, you know, cloak of ability here to say, look, I'm going to stand behind the president. I may not agree with what he did. I do not agree with what took place on January 6th, or I don't agree with this nonsense about the big lie, but ultimately I am a Republican and I will stand behind the Republican leader. If Donald Trump is no longer going to be the leader, if that happens to be Ron DeSantis or if somebody else comes up to take the helm uh, at the top of the Republican Party, does that start to move these people away by by pushing back more on, on Donald Trump? You know, there's kind of a political game here, despite the fact that this right. is such a serious investigation. Politics will always play into this, so Republicans may be fearful, but ultimately they do understand that there is some sway and pressure 
uh, from the former president, and he really still can pull strings here. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. We're continuing our discussion with Global National Washington, D.C. correspondent and producer Reggie Cicchini about the January 6th committee hearings, uh, particularly the one held yesterday, where a former top aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, laid down some facts about what she had seen and heard, what she was told, and where and how, really painting quite a picture. I found also interesting that that Ms. Hutchinson was very clear in what she did not know when being questioned by Republican Liz Cheney in the hearing. And Reggie, um, when it comes to Mark Meadows uh, sharing sort of his perspective and position on what that mob coming toward the Capitol looked like to him. I mean, the picture that was painted of him sort of mindlessly scrolling on his phone and typing on his phone a little bit um, by Hutchinson, her firsthand uh, account of that was really quite telling, I think. Yeah, especially considering that her testimony is that his first question out was, have you told the president, Um, you know, which would again play to how much did Donald Trump actually know in the hours leading up to January 6th? If he was being told now by the senior assistant to the chief of staff that people were walking around D.C. with assault rifles. And for anyone that didn't know, D.C. has an incredibly strict anti-gun policy where you cannot carry any kind of gun on any parts of the streets um, in and around uh, the district, let alone walking onto the Capitol property. So, you know, this this was a gigantic moment um, and it raises more questions as to, you know, why Meadows is pushing back so vehemently on not coming into uh, the committee to testify openly whether it would be incriminating to him or whether he simply you know doesn't want to find himself buried any deeper right having to go uh, on the record under oath let's talk about donald trump uh, wanting to leave where he gave his now notorious speech on the ellipse and wanting to go apparently to the capitol building uh, and what his secret service uh, lead uh, the 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 gentleman who was driving the car uh, the limousine um, said to him when the president said, take me to the Capitol. Can you sort of reiterate what uh, Ms. Hutchinson said about that? Well, look, there are a couple of angles on that story. One, Donald Trump wanting to go to the uh, U.S. Capitol. We knew he wanted to. He said he initially wanted to march with the supporters. Secret Service said, you know, we can't do that. We don't have um, the abilities to be able to provide that kind of security. And number two, Kevin McCarthy, the lead Republican, um, had pushed back saying, do not let the president come here. On top of that, uh, it was reported via testimony that in the limo, Donald Trump um, attempted to take hold of the wheel and then lunged at a Secret Service agent who was stopping the car from trying to go to the Capitol because they knew that it wasn't a good thing. Now, that is being pushed back by some members of the Secret Service. Uh, They are trying to say that none of that uh, within the limo is true, but not pushing back on anything else. The committee asking the Secret Service to come and uh, testify if they have more to offer. Um, But right now, that testimony stands as what's on the record is that Donald Trump was pushing back. Number two, Jody, I think what's important here is the testimony also said that uh, Cassidy Hutchinson also testified that White House counsel Pat Cipollone said, if the president goes to the Capitol, we are going to be charged with absolutely everything. Again, it leads to questions over potential motive and whether or not this was predetermined to actually be taking place. It is blockbuster for sure. Stunning is the term being used. And certainly uh, Trump allies, and in particular, who was it the... um, 
spokesperson for Donald Trump, basically calling this the unselect committee and 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 calling all of this ridiculous falsehoods and and the former president reacting to Cassidy Hutchinson saying, I don't really know her. And she wanted to come work in Mar-a-Lago and, and the usual, basically. Response. Uh, yeah, I- and and this is what Donald Trump does when he is, finds himself backed into a corner. We've seen this not just for five years of him being in politics, but, uh, you know, in, in 20 and 30 years of him being in business. When something is turning against him, he simply tries to downplay the significance or importance of somebody else, even when that somebody else in this case was the, the highest uh, staffer inside the office of his chief of staff who, who understands exactly what is going on. And there are members of the former administration that were in the press office that have come out to stand with uh, Cassidy Hutchinson saying that this took guts, that this took effort, um, and that what she was saying needs to be taken uh, seriously, not just pushed back on because, you know, some Republicans don't want to accept what was a very clear reality playing out in front of everybody. So with just 30 seconds here, are we going to hear from Mark Meadows? Is is this something that's going to happen at the hearings or is that something the Department of Justice could subpoena him on? He's pushed back on all of the uh, subpoenas so far. He's been found in criminal contempt. Uh, the Department of Justice has already been carrying out a number of warrants uh, on people that have testified already, including the former lawyer, John Eastman. So it's possible that ongoing investigations by DOJ are going to continue and could likely continue after these hearings eventually wrap up. Ultimately, what they do, um, you know, that's that's in their hands. Sometimes there's precedent about going after a sitting president. Sometimes there's less precedent about going after a former president. And you mentioned Eastman. Sorry to just throw this last one at you. His phone was confiscated and he has, he's being compelled to share with what, what's on his phone, right? With what's on his phone, with emails, with documents, with information. This is new information that, again, if the, uh, if the Department of Justice gets their hands on this, ties it to information that was given in depositions. This allows them to bulk up their investigations. Also, remember, there are additional grand jury investigations going on in Atlanta against Donald Trump. So this is not lessening. This is simply exploding and going further. Reggie, thank you for helping us uh, manage our way and navigate our way through this very complex web. We appreciate you. Something tells me we'll be talking again as this continues on. Thanks. You bet. Vance in for Mike Smith. Thanks for being along with us. Now, if you follow me on Instagram at Jody Vance, Jody with a Y, at Jody Vance, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. You may know that I'm rather obsessed with trees. Forests are my happy place. Perhaps it stems from being born and raised in this corner of the world and rainforests have that effect on people? Well, if you didn't know this about me, I'm putting on my tree hugger sash right now on this next subject, because this story of a giant cedar found, discovered uh, right here in our backyard, it might be more than a thousand years old. This is a lot to consume. Uh, I kept going back to the photo of it. It's just It looks like we're looking back in time. It feels like something prehistoric, right? Let's talk to a researcher at Ancient Forest Alliance who was involved in finding this giant cedar. Ian Thomas is with us on the line. Hi, Ian. Hi, Jody. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm a tree freak, for lack of a better way of putting it. I I literally love... You're in good company. (laughs) I just love, I viscerally remember as a child when my parents first drove me through the Redwood Forest and I was just like, what are these? It's just, it's really quite something. I want to start with asking you why you do not use the word discovered when you come across trees such as this giant cedar. Yeah, well, it's just because this tree's been there for thousands, well, certainly over a thousand years and this would have been encountered many times over the centuries by various 
First Nations people, and maybe even early in the 20th century by settlers as well. So, you know, these, you know, we're not the first to ever encounter or see the tree, but we're identifying it, right? We're seeing this and going, wow, this is a significant tree, and we want to um, identify just how, how special and how rare this is. So we should point out it is protected, right? Like this is this is yeah, exactly. A gem. This tree, and it's actually in a really magnificent grove of ancient red cedars, that is luckily protected. Um, however, the actual majority of our, our last productive old growth forest groves aren't so lucky. So most of them are actually right. still in danger of being logged. And whenever you're near an old growth uh, tree forest example of the beauty, the, 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 just the sheer magnitude, looking at the photographs of this particular giant cedar that is found, it, it, safe to say, in and around the Lynn Headwaters area of the North Shore? Yes, correct. Okay, we don't want to be too um, specific because we don't want a lineup of Instagrammers there or anybody to vandalize the tree. This is not to be carving your name into it, right? Exactly. Yeah, we're keeping the location um, confidential for that exact reason. Um, these groves are, are quite delicate, actually. And, um, yeah. you know, someone stepping on the living bark of the tree can expose it to injury. And that's how pathogens get into the tree and end that maybe 1,000 or 1,400 year <laughs> cycle it's been on. So, um, yeah, we're keeping it. It's in a rugged area. There are other giant trees you can see in the lower mainland, um, but that one uh, is, is, is remaining secret. Ian Thomas is a researcher at Ancient Forest Alliance. I'd, I'd like to be a fly on the wall at Ancient Forest Alliance and hear more about the, the findings, the discoveries, the, the trees that you know, discovers the wrong word, the, the trees that you happen upon and, and document. How about that? Um, when and how was this giant cedar found by you? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we spend most of our time actually working with the unprotected um, forest. Um, that's where most of our documentation takes place. However, I sort of heard legends that way up in the upper slopes of Lynn Valley, people who had been in there said that there were tracks of giant cedar up there. And um, I looked at, I rely a lot on government data and satellite imagery that I use to analyze other areas of old growth forest. So I kind of delineated with my um, my co-finder, uh, Colin Spratt, um, we, uh, we sort of delineated where we felt might be some of the most impressive trees. This is actually our second expedition there, um, just uh, slogging through these stunning groves of ancient cedars So we found what really feels like the most uh, significant of them all. So give me the parameters of this tree. How, how, what's the girth like? What is the, the trunk? Mm-hmm. So our measurement right now is preliminary. Um, these okay. trees are, this tree is this huge, hulking, beast growing on the slope. So I took a preliminary measurement and I got it at a, um, a 5.8 meters or 19 feet, which is absolutely massive. Um, we're um, over through the course of weeks or months, um, more official measurements from the big tree registry and the big tree committee of BC will be done. And we'll kind of get what is sort of their assessment of where this tree ranks overall in British Columbia. Um, So this is a very preliminary measurement um, so far, but I think the image of the tree speaks for itself. And this tree is incredibly ancient, Um, certainly easily upwards of a thousand. And some um, tree researchers that I've spoken to 
think it could easily be even over 1,500 or older. One of the older theaters actually left um, in this country. And we need to let that sink in. It's 2022. So this could be like an unbelievable, like when, when we're trying to think back of the era of civilization that this mm-hmm. tree might have been. I mean, it just, it boggles the mind. It's like looking back in history when thinking about just how old this one, well, this grove, but this one tr- giant cedar is. And there it is mm-hmm. just on the North Shore, just right over there. We Sometimes yeah. we forget about that. No, for me, it is a profound, I would say, spiritual experience to have yeah. an audience with such an ancient being that has all the sort of antiquity and grandeur of our great old monuments, but is also alive and is actually part of this intricate living web uh, in this forest. It's, it's, it's sort of like as if, you know, you could walk up to Notre Dame or the, you know, the, the Parthenon and it was still alive yeah. somehow. It, 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 it really, for me, it's, it, um, you know, some of the shivers down my spine. Yeah, which is why you're in the industry that you are, a researcher at Ancient Forest Alliance. Where can we find out more about what you do, Ian? Yeah, so you can go to our website, um, ancientforestalliance.org. And as I mentioned, our main work is really in conserving old-growth forests. This grove that this tree is in is lucky to be set aside. Most of these incredibly just awe-inspiring ancient rainforests aren't. So we're really working hard to make sure that we extend the protection that these really endangered forests need uh, to every grove like this in British Columbia. And can I just point out right here for those who might be listening and going, oh, Ian's one of those people that glues themselves to the highway. You're not. No, thank you for bringing that up. So Ancient Forest Alliance, our strategy is to engage with a broad base of society. So we engage with chambers of commerce, people from all walks of life, Government, nonprofits, other nonprofits, as well as um, First Nations partners and, and businesses as well, non traditional allies. And we're yeah. trying to build a broad coalition to go through legal means to really make it clear to the government that these forests are worth far, far more standing than on the ground. That's how a tree hugger like me gets behind someone like you, Ian Thomas. Thank you so much for taking the time to to share this beautiful giant cedar that uh, has lived in our backyard longer than our ancestors' ancestors' ancestor. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for chatting. Great to chat to another tree hugger, tree lover.